Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I want to start with a question. Um, what does this remind you of? Asking for a friend. Uh, five years ago, uh, this mask, for those who are listening on audio, uh, this mask reminded me of jogging. Uh, when it was cold out and it was winter, I would put one of these on and go jogging because it would keep my face warm and keep my breath warm. and It would remind me of jogging. Five years ago, uh, this would remind me of Kills Paint, if you know that, because I had to uh, paint my attic, which was getting uh, bad with Kills Paint, and it was very toxic, and so I had to wear one of these. Uh, five years ago, uh, this would have reminded me of like major surgery, like this is something a surgeon would have worn. Uh, that was five years ago. Today, this reminds me of something very, very different. <laughs> Uh, today, this reminds me of a very, very hard time in the life of our world, our country, our state, and even our church. Today, uh, this reminds me of um, the time in ministry that I was the clo- closest to calling it quits and saying, I am done with vocational ministry. Uh, this reminds me of a country divided against itself. This reminds me primarily of how polarizing politics can be. Politics are polarizing, amen? I mean, they are polarizing. Whether it has to do with the debt ceiling or has to do with immigration or has to do with, take your pick. Politics is very polarizing. I guess somewhere along the lines, maybe your mom told you this. They say, hey, if you ever go over to a friend's house for dinner, there are two things you should not talk about if you want them to stay your friend. And those two things are what? Faith and politics, right? Don't talk about faith and politics if you want to stay friends with them. Well, today we get to talk about faith and politics. Lucky us. But here's the question. Why are faith and politics so polarizing? Why are the conversations so volatile? Why is it such a big deal that we can't even touch it with a 10-foot pole? Well, the reason is, is because we know that we live in a very fallen and broken and disturbing world. All you have to do is turn on the news and you can see how messed up the world is. And where we put our hope for redemption and restoration of the world that we live in is faith and politics. And so when you start talking about faith and politics with people, you are actually starting to poke what they have put their hope in for restoration and redemption of the world that we live in. It is very difficult many times to bring up faith and politics. We get nervous, we get defensive, and we get anxious. But Jesus does not. 
dare I say, Jesus loves talking about faith and politics because he uses them to point us to a greater kingdom. If you would please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one in the seat in front of you, and it is page 848 in the Red Bible. Uh, Last year, we worked our way through the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This summer, we are going to finish off the Gospel of Mark. And the subheading to our series is, Follow Me, uh, because that's what Jesus calls people to do. He calls the people that listen to him, that hear him, to come and to follow him. That's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to follow him with all of our life, with all of our heart, even in the arena of politics. And so that's what we read about today. So Mark chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful to pay taxes Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Lord, we all come to faith and politics in different ways, particularly politics. Sometimes, Lord, we become over-obsessed with politics and put too much weight and too much hope. Other times, we distance ourselves from politics and we don't stay engaged in the world as you have called your church to do. We often don't know what to do with politics and faith in politics, and it causes tension and frustration. And so God, pray today that you would instruct us and lead us and teach us and help us see the beauty of these subjects of faith and politics, that we might engage your world in a way that brings your redemption into it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The context leading up to this passage is very important. So keeping your Bibles open, I want to take you back to Mark chapter 11, just a chapter before. If you look at verse 15 and the heading above it, it says that Jesus cleanses the temple. So this is right after the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in, you're probably familiar with this story, and he turns over the money changers and he drives out uh, the merchants and he cleanses the temple. And then he pronounces this judgment from Isaiah 56 saying, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, you, you have made it a den of robbers, talking to the religious leaders. Then we get to Mark chapter 11, verse 18. And if you look there with me, it says this, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. We then skip forward to chapter 12. As Jonathan preached on last week, Jesus tells a parable about the vineyard and the tenants. And through this, Jesus, in a not very discreet way at all, is indicting the religious leaders, saying that they have 
rebelled against God, and so now God is going to reject them. And then in Mark 12, verse 12, the verse before today's passage, it says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived, rightly so, that Jesus had told the parable against them. And so the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders and even the Roman government had been building for three years and it has finally come to a tipping point in which the religious leaders are seeking to destroy Jesus. And in today's passage, they are trying to do this with a very carefully crafted question about faith and politics. They're doing it to trap Jesus. And Jesus responds with what many Christians have said is the most important statement about faith and politics that has ever been spoken. And so I want to look at three things in regards to politics in the passage today. The first is the tribes of politics. The second is the trap in politics. And the third is the truth above politics. So the tribes, the trap, and the truth. First, the tribes of in politics. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Uh, In this verse, we're introduced to two political tribes. First, the Pharisees. They're a religious tribe, but they also had a political agenda as well. You know, Christians often use this term Pharisee as a negative uh, term. They'll say, oh, you are such a Pharisee, or that person is such a Pharisee. But to be honest, the Pharisees were the most faithful of the Jews. They were Bible-believing Jews who believed in a resurrection and who were not militant in their beliefs like the Zealots were, which we'll talk about later. Furthermore, for the most part, the Pharisees resented being under Roman authority as the Jews were in that day. They did not want the government involved in their business or telling them what to do. If I were to correlate the tribe of the Pharisees to a political tribe today, it would be like the conservative Republican Christians. It's not a perfect match, but there's a lot of similarities and overlap. The other tribe that we see in this passage are the Herodians. We actually don't see the Herodians very often, only in the Gospel of Mark here and in one other place. The Herodians got their name because they were sympathetic to the Herodian dynasty. Uh, The Herodian dynasty, there were multiple of the Herodian dynasty called Herod that ruled uh, throughout Palestine and Israel, at least four, maybe more than that. Herod I, also known as Herod the Great, rebuilt the temple for the Jews, giving him favor with the Jews. But he was also the guy that took out all of the babies when Jesus was born. Then his son, Herod Antipas, was the one who imprisoned John the Baptist and then beheaded him because a teenage dancing girl asked him nicely. With that said, even though those blemishes are there, the Herodians, described in this passage, was sympathetic to the government and saw them as a helpful resource for the people. And so if I were to correlate them to a political tribe today, they would be like, Christian Democrats, those who are supportive of more government involvement. Now, the third tribe in this scenario is the leader of a tribe, and it is Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus here? Well, look look at verse 14 with me. It says, and they came and said to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now remember, they have come to trap Jesus. Their statement here is disingenuine, but it's, it's kind of been what's been reported about Jesus. They're trying to warm Jesus up with flattery and, and get him to the point where he is forced to answer the question that they are about to ask. But with that said, despite their insincerity, their statements about Jesus are completely accurate. Jesus is a great teacher. We still hear of his teachings all the time today, 2,000 years later. It is true that Jesus was not swayed by lobbyists or by popularity polls or by unions or by millionaires as politicians are so tempted to do today. Jesus was persuaded by God and by God alone. And because of that, Jesus was a threat to both the Herodians and the Pharisees, a threat to both the liberals and the conservative, a threat to both the Republicans and Democrats of the day. And why was he a threat? Because Jesus' primary allegiance was not to a political party, but to God. You know what is so interesting about this scenario in Mark chapter 12 is that the Herodians and Pharisees were common enemies politically. They seldom agreed on anything. They are on opposite ends of the political spectrum, one on the far right and one on the far left. And yet Jesus brought them together. Jesus brings political opponents together in two ways, one through a love for Jesus, but in this case, a hatred for Jesus. This is far from a perfect analogy, but the last time I remember Republicans and Democrats this united in the United States was after 9-11 when they rallied together against a common enemy that they wanted to destroy. The same thing is happening here, except Jesus is that enemy. And why is Jesus their enemy? It's because the teachings of Jesus and the ways of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus threaten their political agendas. I love what Pastor Tim Keller says about faith and politics. He says, Christians are called to be more conservative than the conservatives and more liberal than the liberals. Christians should be the greatest environmentalists because of the creation mandate to righteously rule all over the world. And on the other hand, Christians should also be the most persistent on protecting the life of unborn children and fighting against racism because human life is a gift from God and is to be protected and valued. Christians should be more conservative than the conservatives and more liberal than the liberals because we are seeking to follow the ways of God. You see, it is perfectly fine to affiliate yourself with a political party. We have people in our church that lean towards Republicans, some that lean towards Democrat, and I love that diversity in our congregation. And the love of Jesus unites us despite our political differences. But whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, or an Independent, or something different, you must allow Jesus to scrutinize your party, their values, their opinions, their actions. None of us should wholeheartedly endorse everything of a political party because no political party has a monopoly on truth. But Jesus does. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who, by the way, had was very low in his popularity poll, was one of the least popular presidents during his presidency. He was purportedly asked if, if God was on his side in the Civil War. 
And Lincoln responded, he said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Whatever political tribe you align yourself with, this must be our posture when we come to politics. Not to ask God if he would support our agendas, but to ask God, are we supporting your agendas? And so these are the tribes of the politics in this setting. There's the Pharisees who are the conservatives, the Herodians who are the liberals, and Jesus who is the perfect righteous one. Secondly, we get to the trap of politics. Again, remember verse 13 says they had come to trap him. They had malice intent with this cleverly devised question. And we read this in verse 14 as it continues. It says, it is, law, is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? This question seems fairly straightforward to us without a lot of background information. It seems like they're simply asking Jesus, should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes, right? That's kind of how I saw this question for the majority of my Christian life. But as you dig deep, what you find out is that this was actually a very politically tense and polarizing question in their day, much more so than masks were even a few years ago. You see, in that year, in the year 6 AD, Caesar imposed a tax on the people. He already had several taxes, but he added that this new tax was simply given uh, for the privilege of living under Caesar, which the Jews did not consider it a privilege. It was not the most expensive tax. It was a single denarius, which would be a day's wage for a poorer person. So for us, it would maybe be a hundred bucks, nothing extravagant. But this tax, unlike the other taxes, infuriated the Jews because it was meant to be seen as a privilege to live under Caesar, as we mentioned, but also because of the coin itself. The tax was a denarius, and the denarius coin was extremely offensive to the Jews. We have a picture of a denarius up there. You can see that. On one side of the coin, on the left-hand side, you can see is the head of Caesar. And the inscription reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. In other words, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. The other side's not much better. It's Tiberius's mother, Livia, and it's inscribed with Pontifex Maximus, which is translated high priest. And so you can imagine as a Jew being told that you need to give a denarius to Rome every year for the privilege of being under Rome, and on that coin that you're supposed to give to them is a picture of Caesar claiming him to be the son of God and of his mother who is claimed to be the high priest. I'm not sure how it could get more offensive to a Jew. It was so offensive that during that time, there was a man named Judas of Galilee, not, one of, not, not Judas of Jesus' 12, but a man named Judas of Galilee, and he led riots against Rome. Judas saw that this thought that this tax was an affront to the sovereignty of God. They refused the tax because it acknowledged Caesar's dominion over them, and God alone was their king. Jesus exhorted Jews to not register in the census for taxes threatening to burn down their houses and rob their cattle if they did. Some believe this response to the tax, these uprisings, this uproar, this rebellion is the beginning of the zealots, if you're familiar with them, 
who sought political change through force. One of the other really interesting things that Judas of Galilee did that really connects with our story is that Judas went into the temple and he turned over the tables. He drove out the Romans. He cleansed the temple. And so now they come with this question, is Jesus up to the same thing? Is he rebelling against these taxes, against giving money? Now, in our passage, the Pharisees resented the humiliation of this tax, the denarius. But the Herodians supported it in principle. And so now they bring this question to Jesus, a political and religious question that had been dividing the people of God for 25 years. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They had painted Jesus into a corner. They had trapped him. He was in a lose-lose situation. If Jesus went to the right and said, no, don't pay taxes, then the Herodians would go and tell the Romans that the Romans would come and take Jesus out. But if he went to the left and he said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then he would have lost the Pharisees and the conservatives and they would have abandoned him and seen him as a sellout. Here is the trap of politics. No matter what you decide, whether you go to the right or to the left, you're wrong, <laughs> right? You cannot make a right decision. You will always offend someone. You will always make someone upset. And so what is the solution? Well, Jesus' response tells us that answer. And what we find out is that Jesus does not go politically to the left. Jesus does not go politically to the right. He doesn't go left or right. Instead, Jesus goes up. Let's see how that plays out. The truth above politics. Verse 14, second half, continuing through verse 17. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now we know how politically charged that question is. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought him one. Let's pause there just a second to enjoy the irony of this situation. These people who are so upset about the Daenerys are asking Jesus about a Daenerys. Jesus does not own a Daenerys, and so he gets it from the people who are asking him about the Daenerys. Verse 16 continues. It says, and they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So again, looking at the coins up here on the screen, Jesus holds up the coin and says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And of course, the answer is Caesar. And so Jesus says, render it to Caesar, literally return it to Caesar. Jesus is almost saying this flippantly, like restore it to Caesar. Like it's Caesar's coin, it's no big deal, just give it back to the poor guy, right? Like it's a brilliant answer. But Jesus' drop the mic moment comes next. Again, Jesus does not go politically left, he doesn't go politically right. Instead, Jesus goes up, he goes vertical. Verse 17 again, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. What belongs to God? The answer is every square inch of creation. But Jesus is being even more specific than that. 
The word likeness in this verse, in the original Greek, is the word icon. Probably know that term. Uh, but it means image. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this word icon or image is found multiple times in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we read this. It says, I think we have it on the screen. Do we have it? Maybe we don't. Can you put up Genesis 1? There we go. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our icon, our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own icon, image, and the icon, image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is saying, listen, the Daenerys bears the image of Caesar, so give it to Caesar. Return it to him. But you, you bear the image of God. You bear the image of a triune creator God, so return to him. Render yourself fully and completely and wholeheartedly back to God. Render to God your time and your money and your talent and your thoughts and your passions. Render to God your sexuality and your dating life and your marriage and your leisure and your politics. But most of all, render your heart to God. It all belongs to God. Give it back to him. You are made in his image. You belong to him. Render it back to him. Now, often we forget that we are made in the image of God, that we belong to God, that we must render all of our life to God. And so to help us remember that, I just want to encourage you, the next time you pull out a coin, which will probably be pretty rare in today's society, but next time you pull out a coin, look at the image on there. And you might see George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt. You'll see an image on there. Hold it loosely. And remember that you, yes, you, were made in the image of God. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what bears his image back to God. One more Greek word that I want to point out in this passage. Jesus' second part of the question is, whose inscription is on this coin? Again, you see the coin up here, and the, or the most obvious answer is it's, it's Caesar, right? It is Caesar's inscription. And, and the Greek word there is epigraphe. And it only occurs here in one other instance in the New Testament. And in the other place, it is also proclaiming a king. It is, it is, it is a billboard for the kingship of someone, just like it is here. It is an inscription, not on metal, but on wood. We read this word being used in Mark chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. It says, and when the third hour... It was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. And the inscription, the epigraphe of the charges against him read, the king of the Jews. Again, just like the words of Jesus in our passage today, that sign was disingenuous, but it was truer than the authors could have possibly imagined because Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings who was not only a man made in the image of God, but get this, he was a God made in the image of man. Jesus was the perfect king, the holy king, the loving king that all of our hearts long for. He lived the sinless life of righteousness that no politician, no pastor, no human could ever live. And for those who surrendered to his kingship, 
At the cross, King Jesus took on the treason of our sin and paid for it in full by dying on the cross on our behalf, but on the third day rose again as an eternally living king to establish a greater kingdom. In 1976 in Detroit, Michigan, Reverend Dr. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, I feel like if you have a name like that, you have to become a pastor, but, but Shadrach Meshach Lockridge preached an unforgettable sermon. Uh, I've quoted it to you before. It's okay. It's so good. I'm happy to quote part of it to you again. The title of his sermon is My King. And this is what he says. Again, I'm just quoting part of it. It's a little bit lengthy, but just a part. He says, my king was born king. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is Lord of lords. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful, impartially merciful. That's my king. Can you say this about any politician? He's God's son. He's a savior of sinners. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unique, unparalleled, unprecedented, supreme, preeminent. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried, sympathizes, and he saves. He heals the sick, cleanses the leper, forgives sinners, discharges debtors, delivers the captives, defends the feeble, blesses the young, serves the unfortunate, regards the aged, rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, he's my king. My king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory, master of the mighty, captive of the conquerors, head of the heroes, leaders of the legislators, overseers of the overcomer, governors of the governors, prince of princes, king of kings, and he is lord of lords. That is my king. He, uh, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him out of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor and he has no successor. There, ha what was no there was nobody before him and there will be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Amen. And then he says... Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And ever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forevers, then amen. I don't know if you noticed this, but did you see how the Pharisees and the Herodians responded to Jesus's answer? Usually when you're asking someone a political question, trying to trap them, and they kind of don't answer it directly, people are like, yeah, look, they're dodging the question, right? And you get frustrated. But how did they respond? They marveled at him. This, this has a connotation of admiration. They didn't marvel at his answer. They marveled at Jesus because Jesus pulled back the lie about earthly politics, because Jesus knew the truth about earthly politics in a way that no one else 
seem to understand. And here's the truth above earthly politics. As important and valuable as they are, and they are, and Christians should be involved in politics, they are temporary. They are secondary. They are subservient. They exist under God and the eternal King, Jesus Christ, who is making all things new and who holds the entire world in his hand. Let me end with this. Um, Last week, I got to go to Arizona with my son Corbin for a basketball tournament, and we had an extra day, and so we rented a car to drive up to Sedona, which is absolutely beautiful if you've ever been there. You know what I'm talking about. And we got this car through uh, kind of a third-party website, but it's the cheapest car I could find, and so I rented it, and we got in the car, and we're driving, and it, it seemed fine, but as we're driving along, like any time you would hit a bump, it sounded like the hubcaps were going to fall off. Like everything just kind of jittered, and it sounded like the car was going to fall apart. And so I had the opportunity as a dad to pass on some fatherly wisdom to my son and a saying that I've had for a long time, and the saying goes like this. Maybe you know this saying. It's okay. It's a rental, right? Like, it's okay, it's a rental. And so, you know, we would be driving along and we would hit a speed bump and it sounds like the car is falling apart and be like, it's okay, it's a rental, right? We, we would drive down like a, a, a gravel roll road and it sounds like we're re-entering Earth's atmosphere. It's like, right? And I'm like, it's okay, it's a rental, right? Right before we went to the airport, we went to one last sightseeing spot and I kind of pulled up on the curb a little bit and my son learned by now, it's okay, it's a rental, right? I don't know if you remember, but two weeks ago, I said that Jesus talked more about money than any other subject except for one. And do you remember what subject Jesus talked more about than any other subject? It's the kingdom of God. See, the reason Jesus never complains about the Roman government and the gospels, the reason Jesus seems so casual about the Roman government even in this passage is because in some ways, as important as earthly politics are, it's just a rental. It's okay. Jesus was consumed and fixated on an enduring and successful kingdom of God. He was obsessed with the kingdom that blankets over every political kingdom on the face of the earth. You see, the Roman Empire, which may be the greatest empire the world has ever known, had a shelf life. It lasted a thousand years, which is very impressive, but it still ended. The United States of America, which is great and God has blessed us, has only been around for a quarter of that time, 245 years. And the United States also has a shelf life, whether we like to admit it or not. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, the one that he was primarily focused on is the kingdom that has no end. It is the kingdom where all things will be made right again. The kingdom where all the sad things come untrue. It is the kingdom that conquers Satan, sin, and death. Why wasn't Jesus super anxious about politics? It's because even in the midst of politics, Jesus was looking forward to a greater kingdom. And Jesus was a part of a kingdom that reigned over the entire world and infiltrated every political party through his disciples. A kingdom that will come to perfect and glorious completion when he returns and establishes a new heavens and new earth. Jesus had his hope set on the kingdom of God against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Whatever tribe you align yourself with politically, do not fall into the trap that many Christians have of making 
politics your greatest hope of the redemption of this world. Because the truth about politics is that Jesus is the king of kings. He has established and is expanding his kingdom and will bring it to completion when he returns. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for engaging a awkward and difficult subject for many of us to talk about, but that is so important to you, God. We know that you have instituted the governments that are in authority over us and that that we are called to be good citizens, that we are called uh, to participate in government, God. But I pray even as we do these things, that we would have our eyes set above, set upon you, set upon the kingdom of God, and that we might live out the reality that you, are, you have established your kingdom and that you are growing your kingdom in our hearts and in this world, and you will complete your kingdom when you return. Help us to set our hope and the weight of all of our desires upon you, our King, and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.